Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 17. 1 Kings chapter number 17. A few weeks ago I started this series of messages entitled The Lord God of Elijah. And I always want to emphasize that because even though we're going to look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the great emphasis is upon their God. Uh, without him, uh, they would have been nothing. First Kings chapter number 17, we left off last week with verse number 16, and we pick up today in verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to, and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come back into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived and Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, By this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of God in thy mouth is truth. In the very first message in this series, I pointed out that Israel was a nation that was on the wrong road. They had rebelled against God, and in dealing with this wayward nation, God prepared the prophet Elijah as his instrument. And I want you to, I mentioned that because there's something about about that that amazes me because we've been talking about this national problem but now all of a sudden here in this chapter our attention is focused on one single woman and that reminds me of God's great concern for the individual with everything that's going on in the universe Think about that for a little while. I mean, we don't even have a clue as to everything that's going on in the world, let alone in the entire universe. And with all of that, and God controlling all of it, God is thinking of you and your needs. Only God could do that, by the way, and that's exactly what He's doing. For us, life is tough and it's confusing. We go from one crisis to another, and here we see an example of that very thing. Notice the, the mystery about it here in verse 17 and verse 18. Notice her, her calamity, verse 17, and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. 
So as I just said, the road of life takes us from one crisis to another. And a lot of times our trials come at unexpected times. I mean, something really good had just happened. Remember, her and her child, as far as they knew, had enough to eat for one meal and fully expected to die. And this preacher comes along and says, give it to me. I mean, that was the, you know, the last thing that the flesh would uh, want to do. You know, after all, she could have said, well, I love my son more than I love you. I'm not about to give you what little we have. And, but she obeyed. And as a result of that, as a result of that, God has been feeding her and her son all of this time. So here she is going from this great blessing now to another crisis. And this crisis has to do with not her personal need, and, but with her son. And it says that life went out of him. He died. I, I mean, that's, that's pressure. Here she is. Obedient to the Lord, doing exactly what the preacher commanded her to do, and he dies. The good news is that God had delivered her when she thought she was starving to death, and the, well, the bad news is there's more bad news. You know, we go from thinking we're going to starve to death to the death of her son, and for a parent, I mean, that's as bad as it can get. Probably every parent has thought to themselves, I just don't know what I would do if something happened to one of my children. If one of my children, you know, in an accident or disease or whatever it was, and if they died, I, I just don't think I could deal with that. You know, that's, a, that's just about as bad as it gets. And so here this woman finds herself in that very place that we dread to even think it, think about. I mean, that's as severe as it gets. There's nothing that seems more final than death. And this woman is facing what seems to be an impossible situation. Mary Baker Eddy many years ago taught that there's no such thing as death, that, you know, it's just all, all in her mind. Now, you would have to have her, and, of course, she's dead, and uh, but you you'd have to have her to explain what she meant by that. But her followers they they believe that. I like what one of the old professors said many years ago. He said, "Well, he said I don't know about that. I'll tell you what. One day that old gal quit breathing, you know, and they took her out to the cemetery and dug a hole and put her in it and threw six foot of dirt in her face, and I'd just soon be dead as being a shape like that." So. Death is real, folks. And now this woman has experienced the death of her son. What, what do you do? This, this is impossible. That's why I said this morning the message tonight has to do with facing the impossible. And that's exactly where she's at. So here in the face of this calamity, notice verse 18, the confusion. She said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now, as you might, might expect, she couldn't understand what happened. 
And she's not the only one that's confused, by the way, because if you look at verse number 20, back in F, you'll see that Elijah is just as confused as she was, and which is a reminder of the fact that preachers don't have all of the answers. You know, people have got questions. We don't always have the answer. And if we try to pretend like we have the answer, all we do is make a fool out of ourselves. We don't have the answers. We face situations that we do not understand. We're looking for, you know, solutions to problems that we cannot comprehend. And uh, when you look at this story, it really it seems so unfair that this woman... As generous as she was, remember, she gave her very last meal to the preacher. As generous as she was, and now to face this grievous problem. You know, human nature is always the same, and it's, you know she's got, she's got to have thought, this really isn't fair. You know, I took care of the preacher, and, uh, you know, now my son is dead, and, uh, This is a situation that's impossible. Boy, as we go through life, there's all kinds of mysteries that we'll never be able to comprehend. That's why the question why is the most often asked question in the world. Why? Why this? Why me? Why now? There's always a, always a why question and and it seems like, you know, we're just demanding, God, give us a reason, you know. We want an explanation for why you're forcing us to go through this. Because you come to church and you hear me say something to the effect that there are no accidents with God. He either causes everything or He allows it. It doesn't mean God puts His approval on everything, but God allows some things because God sees the big picture and we don't, and God knows how that He can take the very worst imaginable situation and bring something good out of it, so God allows it to happen, you see. So God is in control, and there's so many times whenever we think about that, you know, in our mind we know, all right, God is in control, but why, why is everything so out of control in my life? Because I love the Lord, I'm faithful to the Lord, and so forth, and yet, and yet, here I am in an impossible situation. And notice here in verse number 18, there's, there is actually criticism here. Now, she's speaking to this same preacher that she fed her last bit of food to, and she says, what have I do, uh, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Notice, art thou coming to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? E evidently, this is her only child, and, and you just gotta know, she's been looking forward to the day that he's gonna become He's going to become a man. He's going to have a family of his own. I'm going to have those precious grandchildren and what have you. And, and she's envisioned all of this. And now, suddenly, her dreams are dashed to pieces. She has just lost the thing that meant the most to her. You know, for, for, for a mother, the child is her joy, you know. The husband is her means of support, but the child is her joy. And now she's lost the one thing that means more than anything to her. And here in verse 18, I think it's pretty clear she's blaming the preacher for her loss. She even associated his, 
her child's death was some sin in her past. I have no idea what she's talking about. There could have been, you know, there could have been a dozen different sins, but there's something on her mind, some sin in her past, and it's like she's saying to Elijah, have you come to torture me? Are we going to dig up the sins of my past and deal with them now? And uh, so she's now turned to being a critic. That happens a lot of times to people when they're going through difficulties. As I've often said, you know, everybody at some time or another acts out of character. Because whenever the pressure is on and there are problems that we don't understand and we get hurt and disappointed, you know, we act out of character. We do things that normally we would never do. And we ought not to be too hard on this woman here because we tend to do exactly the same thing. You know, whenever we lose everything that we've worked for, everything that we love the most, we, we, just, we feel like we've got to blame someone. So she blamed the preacher. By the way, sometimes people blame God. You know, they get bitter at God because of what's happened. Let me give you a verse that will maybe, maybe help put things in perspective. Way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 4 and verse 10. This is where God is dealing with Moses. And He's going to send Moses to Pharaoh and with the command, let my people go. Now, you can imagine what a challenge that is. What a fearful thing that is. And Moses is saying to the Lord, I'm not eloquent of speech, you know. You, he, he felt like I did when God called me to preach. You've got the wrong guy here. It was kind of like, you know, he was saying to the Lord, here am I, send Aaron. You know, Aaron can do it, send him. So he's trying to, he's trying to figure some way out of this and complaining about it. And so the Lord says to him in verse number 10, in verse number 11, he reminds him, Who has made the dumb and the deaf and the seen and the blind? Have not I the Lord? Whoa, think about that. God is saying, I have big shoulders, blame it on me, because I am the one that is in control of everything, and I either cause it or I allow it, whether they're dumb, whether they're deaf, whether they're seen, whether they're blind. I did it. I did it. Now, it's important that we remember that because we've got to realize that God is in control. That's what He was driving home to Moses. And here, here, this woman seemingly has lost sight of the fact that God is still in control. Her son is laying there lifeless, but God ain't dead. The boy's dead, but God's not dead. Now, verse 19 on down through verse 23, we see the miracle. Boy, if ever there was a time a miracle was needed, I'll guarantee you this woman would have said, this is it. Notice in verse number 19, And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up in, into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his, upon his own bed. I want you to notice in all of this that Elijah remains calm. 
You know, preachers by nature have a tendency to get rather emotional. Uh, I've, I've got one preacher friend. I haven't seen him in years. I guess he's still around. But, uh, I, I mean, he went right out in the parking lot with one of the members. Something was said, and they went right out there and settled it with their fists in the parking lot. And, <laughs> And he had a reputation for doing things like that. He just couldn't control his emotions. And, and, and you know, sometimes, sometimes it's difficult to just, you know, remain calm whenever somebody is blaming you for something you didn't have anything to do with. And she's criticizing him, and it's like Elijah saying, wait a minute, lady, I, you know, I, I didn't do it. God did. But he didn't retaliate. He didn't try to defend himself because, well, that wouldn't have helped anything. We don't need to answer every charge that's brought against us or always explain every question or try to defend ourselves. So he just remains calm. And I want you to notice three things here related to this miracle the first thing is that god's power is always sufficient because you know nothing seems more hopeless than death but nothing's impossible with god his power is unlimited and that's what this story is all about it's intended to make us think and to know that God is in control. God's not trying to convince us that if we've got enough faith that we can raise the dead, that's not the point of it. There might be some preacher comes along and try to convince you of that, but that's not the lesson of the story. It doesn't have anything to do with what you can do. It has to do with what God can do. By the way, someday He will raise the dead. All of the dead. And it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. You know, naturally we want God to hurry up and work according to our schedule, but God has His own plan and He's going to work it all out and one of these days He's going to raise the dead. But I want you to understand, He has the power to raise the dead. He proved it when He raised Jesus up from the dead. So God is in control. Secondly, sometimes God works in unusual ways. Here in these verses, verse 19 through 21, and it really seems odd. He said to the woman, He said, Give me your son. He takes him up into a loft, lays him on his bed. Hovers over him and three times breathes life, as it were, into the boy, and God raises the boy. And I look at that and I think, that's really unusual. You know, and sometimes uh, God works in unusual ways. Ways that seem odd. I don't know why it is, but we seem so reluctant to expect God, you know, in unexpected ways. And so when it comes up, I suspect we attend church and we read the Bible and sing songs of praise and we, you know, without any thought as to whether or not God's going to really do anything. 
And I think when we think about Christ, we need to look for the unusual and look for the unexpected because nothing's happening by accident and never be too quick to dismiss the possibility of some unusual event being used of God. Then notice here that there are some things basic to securing God's blessings. Notice verse 19, Elijah said, give me thy son. So the first, the first thing that's basic to securing God's blessings is what? It's obedience. The preacher said, give me your son. Now, ask yourself this question. What if she had refused? She could have said, don't be stupid. There's nothing you can do. There's a number of other things that she could have said. She could have resisted him and said, that is nonsense. My son is dead and you need to leave it alone right there. We, I've got a funeral to plan and you, you, you just need to leave this place. Instead of doing that, she obeyed. I, I wonder how many times we deprive ourselves of God's blessings because we refuse to obey God. Sin is a costly proposition. We pay a high price when we rebel against God. And as I said in the very beginning of this series, obedience is the key to having our needs supplied. We can't expect God to supply our needs unless we do that which is pleasing in His sight. So whenever we give God what He wants, He gives us what we need. So the woman obeyed. Secondly, look at verse number 19, and we see there's the element of faith as well as obedience. That's why we love that old song, Trust and Obey. Those things go together like a hand in a glove. Verse 19, And he took him out of her bosom. Now the woman was being obedient, but notice here that Elijah is willing to undertake a project that will make him look like a fool if he fails. He's attempting to do something as far as we know from everything we read in the Bible. He's attempting to do something that had never, ever done been done before. There's no record of anyone ever being brought back to life until now. That's faith. That's what God expects from His people. He expects us to live by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that God is, that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Why is faith so important? Well, faith is important because faith honors God. And God honors faith. Elijah could have said, you know, dear lady, if there was anything in this world I could do, I am so sorry about your loss. If there was anything I could do, he could say what I've said many times, I wish I had a magic wand that I could just wave and all of a sudden solve your problem and meet your needs, but I don't. He could have said something like that, but he didn't. He just said, bring, bring me your son. She could have said, go get him yourself. Right? He said, no, no, no. It's going to require faith on her part as well. I want you to bring your son to me. 
She brings the boy and he takes the boy up into the loft and there hovers over him in three times. Now, this is an act of humility. That's the next element in securing God's blessings. Elijah knew full well that contact with the dead would defile him according to the Old Testament law. This is an act of humility on his part. He doesn't really care if it defiles him or not. He's concerned about that boy and the boy's mother more than he's concerned about his welfare. And humility is the very essence of Christ-likeness. We see that in Ephesians chapter number 2, or Philippians chapter number 2. I want turn over there for just a minute. This is such an important uh, section of Scripture. In fact, I can remember preaching an entire series of eight or ten messages on these verses. And I want you to notice carefully exactly what Paul says, beginning in verse number 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now here it is. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's Christ's likeness. Humility. And here we see a picture of that very thing. Elijah saying, even if I am defiled in the act of raising this boy, so be it. I'm willing to, I'm willing for that to happen to me, that life might be imparted to this boy. Now notice in verse 21, because there's another element here, and that's the element of prayer. Verse 21, And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. There are four things about that prayer that jumps out at us. Number one, it was brief. Remember, Jesus said we're not we're not heard for our much speaking. Back in, uh, well, before 1900, back in England and among the Puritans and what have you, it was not, it was not uncommon for during the church service for someone to lead in prayer and to pray 20 or 30 minutes. Now, I don't know their heart. I don't know the situation. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of them. That's not my place to do that. But I'll tell you what I have heard in churches a lot of times, and that's someone trying to wax eloquent and just, you know, trying to impress people and just go on and on and on and on and on in their prayer instead of just being brief about it. Notice what he said. He let this child's soul come into him again. 
That, that's it. That's the request in a nutshell. Our prayer doesn't have to be long. And then notice it's with much emotion. In verse 20 and 21 both, it says, He cried unto the Lord and said, Oh my God! I can remember preaching an entire message on that little word, oh, because, boy, let me tell you, that's missing in most Baptist churches today. Oh, that that emotion, that zeal that, that we so desperately need. And, and here we see that you talk about a heartfelt prayer. I mean, it might be brief, but I mean, it, it is to the point and it's from his heart with much emotion. And notice how specific it is. You know, sometimes people pray themselves around the world and back. You know, brother so-and-so, would you lead us in prayer? And, you know, they, I'm not saying we have that here, but I've experienced that. And all of a sudden they're praying for, they're praying for all of the poor little starving kids in India and China and everywhere else. And they go on and on and on praying around the world and their next door neighbors lost and undone without Christ as their Savior. And they never mention God use me to reach them before they die and go to hell. Pray about everything under the sun except the matter at hand. You know, we talk about praying for those that are, that are sick among us. We ought to be specific about that. You know, if I'm sick and in the hospital, Mr. Stone calls and says, Hey, Brother Stone just had a heart attack and they don't know if he's going to make it or not. Yeah, I want you to get specific about that. I don't want you to, I don't want you to, you know, start praying that I'll, uh, uh, my favorite ball team will win the game or something like that. I want you to pray that God will give that doctor the wisdom that he needs to rightly diagnose the problem and administer the cure and help me through it and that God will, you know, get me over the hump and raise me up and help me get going again. I mean, be specific about it. But the fourth thing is that his prayer was answered. You know, we've all got needs that cannot be met any other way than through prayer. Everything depends upon the effectiveness of our prayer. Those of you that sing special music, you ought not to ever sing without having prayer sometime, somewhere before you sing and pray, Dear God, you know... Use this song. Minister through me. Help me to be a blessing to somebody. Use the ability that you've given me to, to help other people. Whether you're teaching Sunday school, you know, anybody can snatch up an outline and run into the classroom and, and just like a parrot, you know, read word for word and go through the outline and say, there it is. But we need to pray that, that you know, that God will put that message in you and help you deliver that message. Everything we do has to be done with prayer or it's going to end in failure. Now that leaves us with one other thing. We see the miracle now, but notice here in verse 24, And the woman said unto Elijah, Now, that's an important word, now, and then notice the next two words. Now, by this, 
all of the things that we've just talked about. Now, by this, I know thou art a man of God. I kind of think that there was a time there when her boy died that she sort of doubted whether Elijah was really a man of God or not. That's why she made that statement in criticism. Have you come to bring up some of my old sins again? Is this payback? Is that what this is all about? But now she says by this, I know thou art a man of God, but notice, and that the word of the Lord, notice, in thy mouth is truth. This is the mother's confession. The miracle has convinced her that Elijah was indeed a man of God, that he spoke the Word of God. And boy, is there ever a lesson in that for us because we're not miracle workers. But our lifestyle ought to convince others that we're God's children and that our message is true. There's never been a time in my life where I had any expectation of raising the dead. I preached a lot of funeral services. I never attempted to raise the dead. I never thought that God was going to use me to raise the dead. But God can use us in other ways. In the manner in which we live, you go back through this story, you go back to the point to where he remained calm. He could have pointed his bony finger in her face and said, listen, my dear lady, let me tell you something. He could have read her the right act. said, you've got it all wrong. You don't know what you're talking about and so on and so forth. He didn't do any of that. He just remained calm, gave her clear instructions, expressed his deep desire to raise the boy up from the dead. And that convinced her. And whether it's your classmates, your co-workers, your neighbors, or the other church members, we ought to... We'll live in such a way that they are convinced that we are God's children. The Lord dealt very clearly with that matter. That whenever, you know, they look at us and they see Christ in us. Something that causes them to believe that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you're a child of God, this story ought to encourage you because it's reminding you that God's able to meet your needs. I, I, I mean, what greater need could you have than this? Her child is dead. It seems like her whole world is caving in. It seems like there is no hope that it's an impossible situation. Your situation might be different. You might be facing uh, 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 marital problems. You might be facing a wayward child. You might be, you know, facing a, a disease that has attacked your body or bankruptcy or a number of other different things that, that has backed you into a corner and you feel like you're in an impossible situation and there's no way out. You might as well throw your hands up in despair and just give up. You need to remember God is able. I, 
I don't know what God is going to do, but I know that God is able. And knowing that God is able, and knowing that God cares, and knowing that God is all wise, that He's not going to make any mistakes, but whatever He does, even if it hurts me, whatever He does is going ultimately to work together for good to those who love the Lord who are the called according to His purpose. And knowing that, I don't have to know the reason for my troubles. God doesn't need to give me an explanation. All I have to know is there is a reason, a good reason, that God allows these things to happen. So if you're saved tonight, you ought to leave here greatly encouraged because the Lord God of Elijah is your God. But if you're not saved you need to realize that you have a much greater need than that of that boy or that mother. That boy was dead physically. Life had left his body. But if you're unsaved, you are dead spiritually. By that, I mean you are separated from God. And spiritual life is a whole lot more important than physical life. Every unsaved person is spiritually dead and there's only one source of life and that source is Jesus Christ. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And if you're here tonight, I'll tell you what, there can be there can be a resurrection of your spiritual life. You can be born again and leave here as a child of God knowing that you have eternal life. Think of that then. Eternal life. It says, you shall never perish. That's, that's a promise to every child of God. You shall never perish. And to know that you have eternal life. It well, it doesn't get any better than that. And I hope you won't leave here without Jesus tonight, but that you'll put your trust in Him. If you're here and you've been saved, and it might be that, you know, I'm not asking you to explain to anyone here what the nature of your problem is. You don't need to do that. Because God already knows. And whatever it is, God is deeply concerned about that problem, and He has the power to help you. But remember, the key to gaining God's help and His blessings is what? Well, it is obedience, and it's faith, and it's humility. When God sees us trusting Him and obeying Him and humbling ourselves before Him, God leaps into action. And if He doesn't do what you're asking him to do it's because he's going to do something better we might not understand it but that's because we don't see the big picture yet but whenever we stand before our dear savior there will not be one person say oh by the way i've got a complaint i don't think you handled such and such situation in the best way no no we'll all fall on our faces and agree that He doth all things well. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank You for the encouragement that we receive by looking back upon the way that You worked.
through Elijah and in the life of that mother and the death of that boy. Whenever we start out with the story, we look at that horrible, terrible tragedy and we think about how awful it is. But then we come to the end and we see you bringing life out of death. And we see you using that situation to convince that woman that you are indeed God. And Lord, may we so live that others can see Christ living in and through us. And in doing so, that they'll realize that He is able to meet their every need according to His riches and glory. So minister to your people here tonight. Encourage them and help them strengthen all of us. Meet their needs. And if there are those here that are lost, we just pray that tonight might be the the time they trust Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen. While we 